0: Listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Climbing Business Journal podcast. I'm John Bergman. I'll be your host for today's episode. With what we do at CBJ, we're always hoping to inform and connect and inspire people who work in the climbing industry and who work with climbing businesses. But that has some really interesting application with today's guest, which is Wade Desai. Wade is the director of climbing at Ascend in the Pittsburgh area. And as you'll hear, he certainly loves climbing, but he's also really passionate about slacklining, and he's really accomplished at it too. And he's seen slacklining take off as a programming offering at Ascend. So a question becomes, could more climbing gyms be offering slacklining? And if so, what are some of the steps that a gym should take to get a slacklining program started. That's kind of the basis for today's conversation with Wade, but there's a lot of other good stuff in here too, including Wade's really fascinating career path to the climbing industry. So here it is. I hope you enjoy my talk with Wade Desai. CBJ and this podcast wouldn't be possible without our sponsors. Strati Climbing installs and refurbishes incredible landing surfaces for climbing gyms, rec centers, schools, and home walls. And since all floors wear down over time, Strati often works with facilities to resurface old landing areas, extending the life to save money and avoid the landfill. Family owned and operated, the team at Strati have been installing padded floors for over a decade. Learn more at straticlimbing.com. EP climbing has grown up with the sport of climbing. Since they began in 1985, EP has built countless walls for climbing gyms, colleges, parks, World Cups, even the Tokyo Olympics. Learn more at epclimbing.com. Wade, thank you so much for chatting today on the Climbing Business Journal podcast. You have, quite frankly, one of the most unique and interesting industry origin stories, I think, that I've ever heard. You grew up climbing as a kid. You even built a home wall in your backyard as a teenager. But then when you got a little older and you started developing a a career path, it was in medicine and and the medical industry. You worked to become a doctor. You did your residency, all of that stuff. You were practicing medicine And yet, right as that career, medical career was really starting to take off, you left that world and started working at a climbing gym, eventually becoming the director of climbing at Ascend. I guess my first question for you is if you could speak a little bit about that background and that swerve, what was it about the gym, climbing gym industry that was so strong and so irresistible that it caused you to do such a big, career swerve
1: yeah obviously there's a lot of things that drew me into the the climbing community at large and i think the climbing facilities you know over the duration of the time i've been in the climbing community definitely undergone a lot of evolution and change and one of the biggest changes is they are embodying this concept of the third space so sort of like not where you live not where you work but that third space where you engage the community and I think that was one of the biggest draws that I always had with the climbing gyms, whether it was, you know, I was focused on developing my medical career or whether it was I was interested in practicing my personal hobbies. It was just like when I wanted to decompress or when I wanted to use creative energy or whether I wanted to f- do some sort of workout, it all happened in climbing. gyms. And every year that would pass, they would just get better. They'd get upgrades or more budgets and it just became a stronger kind of draw for me until it got to the point like you had suggested that there was enough of a draw for it for me finally professionally and I was looking at it with this same kind of potential I initially looked at medicine and said wow I can impact a lot of people in an incredibly positive way using skills that are really natural to me and it felt like the balance of where I could have that greatest impact Almost, it seemed abruptly to have have happened overnight, that change. But obviously, it took years of a progressive, you know, subconscious place of getting there. But yeah, it's a long way of saying, I think it's that community draw that always brought me to the gyms.
0: I think a lot of people that work in the industry in a professional capacity, whatever degree that might be, had at some point in their life, a leap of faith moment where they they weren't in the climbing industry but they loved climbing and they loved the community that they knew climbing had and that climbing gyms had and so they decided to they said okay I'm going to I'm going to do it I'm going to like I'm going to try in this industry I'm going to try to get into this industry to do something in this climbing gym industry as you look back on your own life and your career path was there a singular specific moment that comes to mind when you think of the, the leap of faith for you? Maybe
1: not one in particular for the pathway of like making that switch from medical to the climbing world. I can say with pretty good certainty, though, that I very distinctly remember the first time that I got my guiding certification for my first guiding certification in training. and. I went to Seneca Rocks. I got that training from Tom Cecil at Seneca Rocks Mountain Guides. And it was an incredible experience. Again, it was that deep seeding into the community, being there and learning from the mentor, feeling like it, it wasn't some kind of like paid school experience like medical school or even residency had been. It was this truly like human mentorship model, this really ultimately Socratic model of teaching. And I remember feeling that really deep sense of fulfillment in that moment. Every every bit of it. We were in like a crusty old barn type style gym, practicing a lot of things. The Seneca Rocks is, is dated a little bit. I love that about it. But even still, it felt like the perfect facility to be in learning with that grit and that authenticity. And there are obviously the moments when I've experienced similar kinds of sentiments in medicine, but never as comprehensively. Everything that weekend was so perfect. It just, it fit all of the needs I was looking for. It fit all of the desires I want long-term. And it definitely solidified because it it had been, you know, at that point, several months of me transitioning into Ascend and out of medicine. So it wasn't that, it certainly wasn't overnight, but it, it certainly was impactful in that. I remember thinking in that moment, wow, this is really for me.
0: And there's a lot more to your story and your background, and I would encourage anybody that wants to know more to read the profile that we did with you, the Q and A that we did with you in a behind the desk installment, which people can find on Climbing Business Journal's website. But let's transition a little bit to the focus of today's chat, which is slacklining and slacklining programming. Can you tell how, or when, or where slacklining comes into your Life story and your career story, and all of that?
1: That one was abrupt. That one was very much in a handful of things that have happened in my life, that it was relative to the amount of change it impacted in my life, a very small event. So, I had been climbing at a climbing gym, one of actually the oldest gyms in the entire United States here in Pittsburgh, climbing wall. I had met someone there bouldering who wanted to learn how to sport climb. And I had been sport climbing outdoors for a number of years. So, we got along great. I was like, yeah, there's a bunch of great crags around Pittsburgh. Let's go do it. And this guy was into slacklining. Certain slackliners will try to push it down your throat. He didn't really. He was just sort of like, he'd put it up every now and then, a low park kind of line, just you know, right there near the ground. He'd get on it, play around. And we just sort of hang around at the end of the day, maybe have our beer or two. And I never just felt that interest towards it. It was just a background thing. But he always, to his credit, from the moment he met me, he always has said, you are the prototypical slackliner. You will fall in love with this. So legitimately for a year, it was just background noise to me. I mean, I had seen it coming up through slack or through climbing, even more background, but this was the first time that it was in my sphere in the background. And he didn't really again try to push it too hard until one weekend in, a, in October, when a bunch of the world's best highliners happened to be coming to West Virginia to put up some new High lines. And they were gonna do one of the longest High lines at that time in the United States. Um, and it was like the longest one on the East Coast, all these things. So he, he painted it to me as like, come for the show. So I did, I went down, I uh, met him at this like really remote place. It's 25 minutes down the road from Seneca, called the uh, Smoke Bowl Canyon. The place where the lines were is located up on the North Fork Ridge, North Fork Mountain uh, Ridge. Basically, it's one of the highest points in that entire area. So it's certainly high, proper high lines. So we got there right when they finished rigging. Um, We got there a little bit late. They had all these guys. they spending all this energy to do all this crazy thing that no one's ever done before. And the hike to get up there was like two hours, just like straight uphill. So when we got there, they were all pooped. They were relaxing at camp. It was early in the morning. And me and my buddy, Bronson decided to just run up the trail. because, like, we have fresh energy. He was like, oh, this is the only chance I'm going to get to get on the line. So we run up there. Again, nothing in my mind is thinking that I'm going to get involved with this. I'm just like, I'm going to go watch my buddy have a really great time. We get up there. And again, because everyone had used up all their energy, there was no one up there. It was just me and him. It was a little bit slightly windy, like five, 10 mile an hour gusts. So the lines were moving around in the wind a little bit. Not unusual. In retrospect now, not unusual. But I was totally taken aback by the sight of it it was so elevated in this like metaphorical sense but also obviously physical and that's one of the things i love about slackline just as a small side is how metaphorical so much of it is balance unity connection all those things but ultimately he gets out on one of the shorter lines that's there there's like four lines rigged the shortest one's about 150 feet. The longest one, the one that was really the king of all the collection there was about a thousand feet. So he goes out, plays around for a little while, still no one comes up. And he's not a very experienced highliner at that time. So he doesn't really get much done, comes back in. He's thrilled though. He's like, man, you just have to go out there and try it. It's unlike anything else. Like you're in the middle of nowhere and you have your climbing lights, just go do it. So I'm like, sure. And he says, you might as well go out on a thousand foot one. Because no one's out there, and you'll never get a chance to do that again. And I'm like, sure. So it takes a little bit of time for us to walk around to the anchor to get where you have to tie in for the line. And the, the winds are picking up a little bit. As the sun comes over the crest of the North Fork Ridge, it hits these thermals that cause all this wind to happen, right? And we just didn't know that. Again, it's one of our first experiences in that kind of terrain. And again, one of the reasons no one decided to wake up early and come up that morning, right? <laughs> just us two fools. But In any case, I go over there, I tie in. I ask him, is this safe with the wind? He's like, for sure, you're fine. I go out there, and one of the things we do in highlining is complete redundancy, right? There's a backup line underneath the main line that we're primarily putting our load and tension onto, but we keep the backup fixed to the main line with tapes. If you've ever seen a highline, it has a bunch of loops underneath it, and that's basically the backup line being suspended under the main line with all these fancy tapes. Nowadays, Again, this is like seven years after this whole story. Nowadays, we use very, very high technical tapes that are like rated with certain kinds of indications and adhesives. Back then, we just went to the hardware store and used electrical tape. So in winds that we were experiencing that day, these electrical tapes started to break. And when the, the backup line separates from the main line, the backup line sort of becomes unstable and can become very dangerous. So I'm going out there, it's windy. The tapes start to break. I really had no idea that that's a big issue. And as I'm out there, everyone now from the bottom from the camp is starting to arrive. So they see me out on the line, someone they don't know, someone who my friend at The Rocks who they do know is telling them, this guy's never been on a high line. And I'm out there on this thousand foot that is delaminating, untaping. So they run over to the anchor and they're yelling at me, you have to tape the line. And they're trying to explain to me over the wind with the wind What thing, how to properly do this double slider taping technique on these webbings, I'm not understanding. So I very much try to come back to the anchor and tell them I can't do it. And I'll never forget, again, one of the strongest imprints in my mind. I have a horrible memory, but when things stick, they stick really well. Professional slacklineer by the name of Handsome Rob looked me right in the eyes. And he said, no, you have to do it. He didn't let me come off. Maybe that was unsafe, whatever he forced me to a place where I had to deal with what was going on inside me. I climbed very hard routes before that. Moments where I was strung out with all this rope out, thinking I'm controlling the hardest instincts inside me. And here I was with some electrical tape hanging on a line I couldn't do it. I was freaking out. But simply seeing him tell me that and walk me through it, he's like, okay, hold the tape this way. Flip it over this way. Tuck it under this way. And as soon as I did one, I felt this sense of like, wow, I can sort of do anything. Like I just, I have to control myself, put my mind to it and I can do it. So I went out, I continued to tape a few more, really feeling it a little bit more. And then again, this entire time, the wind's picking up more and more and more. Eventually a large gust hits the webbing. And you got to think a thousand feet of one inch webbing. There's 2000 feet of webbing out. It's essentially a huge sail. And at that time, those rigs were heavy. I weigh 110 pounds. The webbing of this rig likely weighed more than me. So this draft hit this webbing, and I'm sitting on top of the webbing, trying to put to the tape, and it just elevates me like in a moment, 25 feet vertically. That was the second strongest imprint I had that day. And still to this day I feel it when I'm on the line and sitting. Same nostalgic callback of how strong I wanted to stand up at that moment and be standing when that wind would just take me up. Because there was no effort. It was, if I had been standing, it would have just simply been like the clouds lifting me up, right? And so I came off the line and I looked at my buddy Bronson and I was like, I get it. <laughs> I understand. And we went back to Pittsburgh because both of us were from here. I had experienced bolting climbing routes. So we bolted some highlines. There's, you know, this culture here in Pittsburgh for outdoor recreation and climbing had just outdoor climbing in the city, urban climbing had just started to take off. So it was a very convenient, serendipitous thing. The slacklining and highlining sort of fell under that as the outside world looked at this happening more and more in Pittsburgh. They're like, oh, not only is climbing happening, but this other part of climbing, lining is happening with it. So it had no irregularity or like criminal element to it. In that first year when we got back, allowed me to just like, Take the passion and excitement I experienced in that literally short moment and just constantly, like some sort of drug addict, try to chase it down. It was a very profound moment. I mean, I think about it, if not weekly, on a very regular basis, because at that moment when I came back, it changed my life entirely. I was put on this path of becoming the Slackline professional in Pittsburgh, which then spread to me being one of the professionals in the East Coast and just gained me all of this experience and opportunity and privilege. That it wouldn't have had with just my climbing background. Again, I've been practicing and working my way into climbing 513. So I wasn't certainly any kind of normal average climber to say either. But slacklining allowed me to even take all those skills I had from climbing and just elevate it up to this new plateau. It was just an incredible experience. I'm so grateful for it. (laughs) I'm so grateful for Bronson. That guy changed my life.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you mentioned Bronson because two things that occurred to me as you were explaining that two big elements of your slacklining introduction it sounds like were the first was mentorship and now granted it was kind of like mentorship very quickly and suddenly and by necessity in the moment right but it's still it's still somebody there teaching you firsthand some of their knowledge and wisdom and and how to so there's mentorship and also the fact that you were hooked instantly and I think those two elements are very prevalent in climbing as well. And as I think one of the things that this conversation will do on a larger level is maybe we'll talk about how slacklining and climbing are linked in various ways from having somewhat of a shared history to, in this case, sharing things like mentorship and, and being hooked instantly. Because you you don't usually see with climbers this kind of like, yeah, I tried it for years and then I finally was like, okay with it. No, it's like, you'd go out, you try climbing once, whether it's a birthday party or whether it's with a friend or whatever, and and it just gets its claws into you and then you get obsessed and it's wonderful and it's something that a lot of listeners to this probably can relate to. So it sounds like there's an aspect of that to slacklining as well, that like once you get the bug, you can't shake it in the best way and also mentorship.
1: I think the last time we spoke I may have said something I like to say a lot which is you know there are there are certainly two types of people when you're outside and you look up at the top of some big mountain there's certainly ones who want to go up there for some inexplicable reason right and I think with slacklining one common thread that a lot of slackliners specifically highliners have is this internal burning question every time they come up to a new highline of can I get across? Like they want to get across. That's no question. Like just like climbers, they want to get to the top. But I think more so with the highlining is a question of like, can I really do it? And that's very interesting because not everyone enjoys putting themselves in circumstances of potential failure, which is a really, really uncomfortable sensation. So to think that you can get an extreme sense of satisfaction from doing these things that put us in this incredibly uncomfortable place definitely speaks to our, per- our deeper personalities without a doubt because I'll go out and you know like I, I've said before I started climbing with my mom and dad and I'll go out and try to climb with my mom now and she won't have it right she's she's not about heights any, anymore and a lot of things have changed in her life so personality wise it's just not a fit for her anymore she much more enjoys biking going out on the water and things like that so I definitely don't like to see the world in uh, black and white. I think there's a great nuance to everything, but it's really hard for me not to just like look at a person and be like, yeah, you're going to try to get up to the top of that.
0: <laughs> it's good to start maybe with that story of how you got into slacklining because it's nice to hear you be in that moment pretty much a, a total beginner. And kind of, oh yeah, I had seen slacklining, but I wasn't really familiar with it because I think that that's what a lot of climbers, that's the same feeling that they have in that they know what slacklining is. Maybe they've tried it once or twice, but in some cases, maybe they haven't tried it at all. They've just seen pictures. They've seen videos that maybe know that there's a little bit of the shared heritage with climbing at campgrounds and crags and whatnot. So can you pan out a little bit and give sort of the Wikipedia overview of what slacklining entails? Because I even see like you, I'm saying slacklining, and then you're saying highlining sometimes. And me being a fairly unfamiliar person with this, even there, I noticed the distinction. So can you kind of just explain all this?
1: I'm really excited for this one. Not because I love Wikipedia, but because I'm a huge fan and, and nerd for history. I think that gives us an incredible amount of insight for obviously why we are where we are, you know, we're a product of our past. So the first thing I say I'll say is the difference. The reason I shoot back and forth between the terms slackline and highline is because I have seen people who have slacklined for ten years, and the first time they get on a highline, they can barely even sit on it. So it's almost like they're two separate sports, even though you're practicing the same thing. But ultimately, with that pan out kind of idea. I have to personally say, I consider slacklining a subdiscipline of climbing, and highlining is a subdiscipline of slacklining. In my mind, this action of balancing one webbing, which, as an aside, the act of balancing on any fabric product, it's called funambulism, really fun uh, way to refer to our sport. But like tightrope walkers, high wire, all of these phrases, slackline, they're forms of funambulism. Ultimately, all of them are horizontal versions of climbing. So we always colloquially and commonly say in climbing, climbing is mostly about using your legs, right? We all say that. Well, if you think about it, if you could climb up a wall like a slab without using your hands at all, that would be incredibly useful. Similarly, on overhang, if you can really creatively and flexibly use your lower extremities, you're gonna be able to more effectively and economically use your upper extremity. So to me, I just I look at highlining and I just see someone climbing sideways. And they're balancing as they do it without needing to necessarily use their hands. And that's sort of the big vision that I think really will help the sport rather than seeing it as this separate entity. Because not only is there ignorance in some levels to, to the highlining and slacklining. Some people just may see it as like a barbecue activity, or some people may see highlining as like only the most extreme people in the sport can do it. And neither of those extremes are true. There's obviously a truth that lives in the middle. And I'm trying to think of the best way of saying this without sounding elitist, but I think there's a lot of hesitancy with slacklining. And again, this could be bias from climbers because of the unitary singular nature of the person that's doing the performance, right? so you look at a Slackliner, it's only ever one person up on Slackline. And I got to say, I I sort of think that deep down in a lot of humans, there's a hesitancy to celebrate the egos of others. Maybe, again, I could be my own deep-seated whatever. But something I've found with Slacklining is a lot of people find it cool, but then the moment they speak to a Slackliner, it's hard to celebrate that person from a public perspective. But ultimately, like, again, once you get more into the sport, you realize it took a team of people to, to plan this, to haul all this stuff up here, to rig all of this. Like, even though the idea is to do the action, the activity of highlining or slacklining, really, the vast majority of our day is spent doing teamwork. I mean, maybe, you know, we'll spend total cumulative in one day, up to maybe 60 minutes on the line. The vast, again, the vast majority of that day is spent with others doing things in much more of a team oriented fashion than even climbing. Is. So I think shifting this sort of lens on the way the sport is celebrated, the way the sport is. Yeah. Celebrated is definitely the best word because I have a lot of personal feelings that when we elevate people like athletes and all of these exceptional individuals and just them alone. We don't celebrate the ways that the sport really will grow the best Yeah, again, I could go on and on, but uh, I think I'll switch back to the sort of history that developed, just a little Wikipedia background that got us to where we are now. Because ultimately, slacklining was born from climbing. It was an activity that, again, people have practiced balancing on things for for thousands of years. But as far as we can tell, in Yosemite, sometime in the 40s to 60s, the approaches to many famous climbs are lined with trails that have steel chain link fencing. And so the climbers, being the natural monkeys they are, as they're approaching and leaving climbs, would balance on this chain. And they, what they realized it was a, it was a great training tool. It wasn't just fun; and they would do you know juggle on it and all that kind of stuff. But they realized this helps us with footwork, core balance, breath work, mental stability, all of these things. And so they, at that time, Camp Four was becoming the training center, sort of you could say, like the prototype climbing facility, but outside, right? And they had all these tools, all these fitness training things. They had these boulders, right? Someone wanted to put up chain, but they're all dirtbags eating cat food. No one wants to pay for steel chain. I mean, I bought a piece of steel chain that's like thirty feet long. It was like almost hundred bucks or something. I can't remember, but it was expensive. So what they what they do? Oh, they had some some climbing webbing. So they tied it to a tree, tied it to a van, and they pulled it tight and slacklined it. They found it way more entertaining. The dynamics stretch, the elasticity versus the chain. So it took off in this way that was just like way more engaging than the chain had been. And ever since then, there's been these chapters of things that have refined the sport in a way that made it even more engaging to the community. The next big chapter, I mean, there's tons of chapters, but the next big chapter is probably when slacklining became hot, um, was born into highlining. So there's actually a really long story behind the birth of highlining. The first Highline was essentially a test rig underneath a bridge that was like, I I believe somewhere outside of Utah or Idaho or something like that. And it was very short and not really all that impressive. but it was a test in the sense that people really wanted to put a Highline somewhere like the Lost Arrow Spire. And so there was a duo, two guys that had really gotten into slacklining and decided to go try to do this at the Lost Arrow Spire. They march up there. They got all this gear. No one's ever done this before. Like they have no idea what they're doing. They're just going to try to figure this out. They like make their own slackline webbing by threading a webbing inside of a webbing, inside of a webbing, furl They used perlon, And then they just put a single, you know, triple threaded piece of webbing across the gap, right? Well, it turns out the first time they go up there, they crank this thing hard enough that they ripped a bolt out. They're like, no one's ever done this. We're going to pull this spire over or do something. So they just bail. They go back down, I think something like two year two years, two years pass and they come back to try again time they're successful. Classically, we've always said the lost service fire is the first high line that's ever been established. It's not technically true. but then you could make that whole argument tracing back thousands of years to like ancient Korean slack growth practices. It's like when when was the first true high line? no one really knows. no one really cares. but From an impact standpoint, when that happened in the epicenter of climbing, right, Yosemite Valley, on one of the most iconic places you could possibly do it, it left this imprint that these guys aren't jokers. These guys are here. They're serious. They can do something impressive like climb this thing. And then on top of that, they can do this. And it allowed this different air of consideration for the sport to exist, which then engaged more people in the community, more people were attracted to that version of the sport and so again more chapters happened over the years i think another big chapter that eventually happened was gatherings meetups or festivals where essentially another historic practice that humans have done for thousands of years like the circus of carnival um, or the you know state fair right all of these things where humans come together to shared interests slackliners realize let's meet up at the best places like moab or yosemite or smith rock And let's all put up the best slacklines so that we can really truly take advantage of this team element and really elevate all of ourselves. Yeah, sure, individually, but not a chance would we be able to do that without everyone here. Again, hammering in that community sense, right? And then ultimately, I think now we're at a place where the last big chapter I can sort of paint in in terms of analogies between climbing and and, uh, what we're experiencing now with slacklining is gear and equipment outfitters. We're seeing the same kind of thing with or you know, Lowe, Greg Lowe, or all these, these dirtbags that bought their own forges and started to make gear, but then became real companies. That's what's happening now. We have Balanced Community or, you know, all these European companies that are are putting out Slackline-specific gear that is independently tested and proof-loaded by labs and given safety certifications by an independent international Slackline association. It's gaining a level of industry standard. That again, it's only going to engage more people in the community who want that type of the sport. It's only to propel things further. It allows more resources for people to become more knowledgeable about things. And yeah, each of those those big things has just allowed climbing to follow a very similar path that you can draw analogies with climbing while sub-existing within the climbing community. It's pretty cool because we get this like template that some old timers already tried and tested now we're, we're finding success in it. The last thing I'll say about it is I just yesterday was thinking about how in my experience, climbing really started to take off as a mainstream thing in like the 60s. And then climbing gyms really started to become mainstream, in my opinion, right around the late 90s, early 2000s. So about 40 years of separation. Well, slacklining took off in the 80s and it's 2023. And guess what? There's now a bunch of gyms that have slacklines, right? So we're seeing a very strong correlation I shouldn't say we, I am seeing a very strong correlation in terms of the progression of things, how it's happening, how it's developing. Google trends show it gaining traction year after year.
0: And that's a good segue because I do want to talk specifically about slacklining in a gym context, because especially nowadays, we live in an era of gym amenities and programming. and. I suppose we should point out that, of course, the sweet spot for any facility in terms of what programming should be offered, how it should be offered, that's going to that's gonna be a case-by-case basis. But you can't deny that things like free weights, hang boards, system boards, you know, free Wi-Fi, coffee, beer, yoga, saunas, dance class, bouldering 101 classes, all of these things. I mean, we could we could sit here and just, Riff off a list that has who knows how many potential amenities and programming things that gyms can offer. But why would you be a proponent of slacklining being an amenity that or a slacklining programming be something that should be considered by gyms at large? So
1: to steer away, I guess, from again for me personally, the less fun parts of conversation and shifting a little bit into like business weight. There is definitely some cost benefit analysis you can do with slacklining. And my experience here in our demographic has been that it is highly beneficial relative to the low cost that it requires. So there's a bunch of reasons. It has multiple uses. We gain an incredible amount of use with it with our youth specifically. So a lot of our youth programming, we're able to do take people, for example, youth from the gym when it's a busy evening, perhaps, and funnel them into an area where three or four of them can work together serves our members well. It changes things up for the youth people that are the youth climbers that are probably getting a little bit bored with what's going up on on the day-to-day. It has an incredible amount of cross-training applicability. Like I was talking about earlier, climbing is a lot about footwork and that is primarily what slacklining is. Uh, obviously there's a lot of balance, but I gotta be honest, most of us balance on our two feet all day long. So once you can just adjust your internal vestibular balancing system, to having your feet longitudinally oriented rather than side by side, it's not so much a strength issue, right? Like most people have the muscles developed for this if they're able to stand on their two legs. And it really becomes all about proper footwork and stacking your joints, all of these things that translate in an incredible way to climbing. Additionally, it has elements of equipment understanding and rigging slash setup. So even just simple, the most simple slack line, which we call a primitive slack line, is essentially a block and tackle. So an eight-year-old who I teach how to put up a slack line for the rest of their life, life will now know how to do a block and tackle. If I ask any usual climber in the gym that has no background in slack line, how would you do a block and tackle for any kind of multiple, pulley multiplication system or anything? Chances are they're not going to have any idea. Maybe they might know how to use a hand asunder for a three-to-one. Because maybe they got into sport climbing and that's picking up some traction. But honest to God, most people can't even escape a belay or a rappel, right? So, all these technical skills that you learn from your time spent slacklining well, because of the need of setting it up, the high forces involved, and the requirement for materials that can handle those forces, and usually they're coinciding with industry, just makes you a more technical climber in terms of equipment and rigging. I can also say that specifically, one thing I really noticed from slacklining that translated back to every aspect of my climbing was my lead game. I was a strong lead climber for sure before slacklining. And now there's not very frequently any moment when I'm lead climbing that I ever feel fear at all, which sounds sort of really cocky for me to say. But relative to being in the middle of the void when a highline. line, it is really, truly comforting to be close to the rock. You have this sense of comfort and, and security with something that's near you, even if it is dangerous and you wear helmets and you'll crash into it and like that stuff. It just it instinctively feels safer than being out in the middle of nowhere. So after now being out in the middle of nowhere for like t- at least 10,000 hours, I come back to the wall and it's just like being on a set of stairs. Even when it's like overhung thug climbing, I'm just still like, It's all right. Like, if I fall, I'll I'll take a whipper. And I've done that thousands of times. Who cares? So, my lead game as a result of slacklining is just so much smoother. And it allows me to focus on all of the little things I would otherwise not focus on. Again, very specifically with slacklining, breath work. It just took my breath work to a whole new level. And, like, I'm not a hippie dippy person. Obviously, with my background in Western science, like, I don't approach things generally with this idea of, but I'm also half Indian, so like yoga, I grew up in a Hindu household with yoga and breathwork is, it's so clear that breathwork has a huge impact in our day-to-day ability for so many things. Like Wim Hof, right? That's the, the most conventional example we use nowadays. So all of these things Though they are independently small, the Slackline allows for all of them within your facility for your customers, and all of them allow your customers to then take advantage of other parts of the facility even more. So now they're climbing harder grades. They're feeling like they can bring other people to the facility because maybe if they don't like this, they can use the Slackline. They feel like they can bring kids. There's just a lot, again, a lot of benefit. And then on the flip side is, you know, a primitive Slackline setup, night cost, the top of the line... Premium Rolls Royce version might cost 250 bucks. Mats might cost, if you don't have a place in your gym, that's already open mats. You might need to get some gymnastic mats. Maybe that's five, 600 bucks. We're talking like a grand investment here of $1,500 to $2,000. And it will last you five to seven years and get you literally an enormous amount of all sorts of programming for all sorts of people. And it's related to climate. It's not just like a random thing you're throwing in the gym for shits and giggles. It is truly like, oh, the real climbers slack. You know
0: I'd imagine there's some gym owners, gym managers, and staffers listening to this that are they don't offer slacklining at their gym currently, but <clears throat> they've heard your your sales pitch here and they are stoked. They are hooked on this, and so they might be wondering, okay, I want to do this. What are the first steps? And I and I. I know that you and I, we've talked, as you alluded to, you and I have talked sort of off mic and on email about this for months now. We have a lot of stuff that we've been discussing about slacklining. So I happen to know that there is an insurance component that we will discuss in a second. So we'll table the the insurance stuff. But other than that, if a gym is wanting to start some slacklining programming and they have nothing, they don't have a closet full of any of the gear or anything like that, what would you advise first steps?
1: So the one asterisk before I would give the tip is just to recognize that this is a burgeoning activity in some senses, right? It it has a lot of established precedent, but ultimately, if someone wants to develop this in their facility, whether it's a climbing facility or not, it's going to be a little bit of a, uncharted territory. So recognize that a lot of this might not be a easily replicable pathway, because it might just be that there's not an availability of some of these resources to you where you are. But ultimately, like anything else we would introduce in our facilities here in Pittsburgh, we look to the industry professionals. So a great analogy is our acro yoga community, where We have a bunch of people in Pittsburgh that practice this uh, acrobatic type of yoga where it's multiple people doing things together. And that really doesn't have any kind of relationship to climbing. Yet there was quite large demand from people to be able to do it in our facilities. And imagine coming to a insurer and saying, we'd like to do this historically circus activity in our climbing facilities is a very strange conversation. So the way that you introduce these new, strange things is by engaging the closest thing you have to, to industry professionals. So by engaging the people in our community with the ACRO who had taught at other facilities or or other places in the country or who had or held certifications, whether they were recognized by people or they were familiar with them or not whether they have certifications in other fields to sort of lay credence to the fact that they are a profession and they treat these things with a level of professionalism and standardization. This isn't as simple as just finding the slackliners at your gym because ultimately there is enough risk with slacklining, just like climbing, if you don't want Joe Schmo to be your profession. It's really hard because, again, it's burgeoning to, to find a way Sort of qualify who that person is. An easy place to start is your staff. If you happen to have someone on staff who has some experience with Slackline, they may be able to themselves or know someone that can provide some input on how to start small. Things like low lines. Don't aim for the high lines first, don't aim for the technical stuff first. Definitely stay away from two inch ratchet lines. They're incredibly high force, they're incredibly dangerous, have the highest statistical preponderance of adverse events and are just sort of finicky relative to a more traditional block and tackle with one-inch webbing. So that's sort of the best place to start. Engage your community. See if you can find people near you who have some level of qualification to speak to doing it safely. Ultimately, reaching out to other facilities around the country who are doing this, like myself. I regularly, at least once a month, Converse with people who are working in another facility somewhere in the country to try to do something similar. I give them my experience, my background, my input. I don't charge them money or anything, right? Contracting fees or any that kind of stuff. I'm just interested in having this continue to, to to grow. And I think a lot of people that are setting these programs up, they're taking that risk. They're not. There's no guarantee, so they're also probably interested in seeing this grow. So if there's someone nearby you in the town that's a couple hours over, maybe it's worth taking a trip out just talking to them in person and seeing what they got. But there are a lot of ways to install a slackline in a climbing gym. And I think, like everything, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. I wouldn't play around too much with it though. The stakes are really high. You know, People are very commonly able to infer that slackline forces are higher than climbing forces. And the idea of standing tension in the system is generally like, you're always gonna have the potential for the release of energy. Which is again a great case for the one-inch lines versus the two-inch lines. It's Just more energy in the two-inch lines than for things to go wrong. And then, yeah, you know, like ultimately, procuring the gear is a big thing because you do not want to rely on once you have found those people, those industry professionals, entirely on their equipment supply. You want their information, their experience, their know-how. You don't necessarily want to be drawing, even if you don't have gear to do it, from someone who's just letting you borrow it. You know. A rope access company would never just borrow ropes from someone, right? There's a very standard chain of custody of equipment in work at height or um, industries that require PPE. And I would draw a lot of analogies from the way that we standardize those practices with the way that I treat my slackline or highline equipment for the gym, much less for myself personally. But yeah, those are the big things that jump to mind when considering starting this kind of thing
0: on your own. And I'm glad you kind of mentioned this or or referenced it a little bit i, I think we should mention a i don't know what you'd call it, a legal disclaimer here or something that, uh, that just like with climbing there's inherent risk there's inherent danger to slacklining to doing anything like that and putting that programming in your gym so to be clear i don't want a gym to listen to this conversation and then this be the only referent and then just go and start slacklining programming like I said, it's just kind of a legal disclaimer, but I do want to stress that every gym should do its own due diligence and research when, when doing this, we're just kind of hoping to spread the stoke here a little bit, but in terms of a gym space, what kind of space would be needed to start some slacklining? Where do you put up the slack slack line or where do you not want to put up the slack line? Can you go into that a little bit? That's a
1: fantastic question. So there's a lot of really good options in buildings. And normally, most gym operators these days have a pretty good relationship with their contractor or the wall manufacturer. Our gyms are built out by, you know, obviously private contractors, and then we're built by Waltopia or on-site. So we have really easy access to them to be like, hey, this anchor that's engineered, what's that rated to? Or our contractors, hey, what's that steel beam over there? What's, what, how much pool can we put on it? And where in terms of in the gym that is possible is going to obviously entirely depend on your specific circumstance. But the biggest thing is mat coverage. If you can put a slack line above your mats, specifically mats that protect from head injury, not necessarily like crash pad, boulder pads. I generally put stiffer gymnastic pads underneath my slack line so that you can come off with a stiff ankle and sort of like land on your feet and not roll an ankle kind of thing. If you trip and knock your head on the ground, you're sort of have a level of security, but ultimately that involves terrain closures, right? If you're gonna, gyms aren't randomly putting bouldering pads or crash pads out in the middle of nowhere. They're usually around climbing areas. So if that is the, the tactic you take and you wanna save money on buying more mats by putting a slack line above existing mats and only rigging it at certain times, not leaving it up all the time, that is certainly one approach. And when that happens, As a result, you end up not having any easily accessible options for anchors. For example, in our facilities, the I-beams that I would prefer to attach to, they're in the open spaces where there's no mats. The I-beams in the climbing area are behind the wall, so I can't really wrap them or use them. As a result, I've sort of developed a little bit of a hybrid anchoring system essentially based on the techniques that all of these manufacturers use for creating their engineered anchors for things like lead climbing with the bolts and hangers, right? So I basically go behind the wall, me and a partner, we analyze on the wall where the plywood is attached to the metal scaffolding behind the wall. And I'm able to do some very basic trigonometry to determine where on the outside of the wall, the direction of pull that I intend on having, how that translates behind the wall, because never in a climbing facility do we ever just attach a hanger to a T-nut. I'm sure people do. It's not a great practice. So as a result, what I do is I attach the hanger to the wall, which is attached to the scaffolding behind the wall. And most of the engineered anchors, when you are lead climbing on like permadrawls, are set up that kind of way. Sometimes you know things like Waltopia, they use U-bolts that are, have their own specific kind of insertions and things like that. But what I found is that if you can do the basic trigonometry, I have you know, this fancy thing called a dynamometer or a load cell measures for something. So if you can use that to proof load these, you can sort of put the hangers anywhere. And then in the gym, you can just cover them with handholds that are big enough to cover them. So you don't have to worry that people are going to bump themselves on this metal hanger or whatever. You just leave it permanently installed. My favorite anchor for an indoor slack line is a quad anchor. I just essentially do like the lost arrow guys and I thread Webbing inside of webbing, inside of webbing, inside of webbing four times. And then I tie a quad, a quad quad. And I attach that to two or three of these scaffolding bolts. And it essentially allows me to have this really nice equalizing, redundant, really strong, right, serene anchor, essentially in the gym. It's sort of the engineered standard practices of the wall manufacturers. So I am very fortunate and have the Waltopia North American headquarters three blocks away from our Southside flagship gym, right? So when this was all being developed six years ago or five years ago, when I was first dreaming this whole thing up, I could just walk down the street to them and and talk to their, you know, super white collar engineers. And they would geek out with me and nerd out with me, show me all sorts of samples of broken things. And I was just like, this is too cool. And I'm hoping that one day I'll be able to do that with the on site people. Because I'm sure they have a whole other, the way they build their walls is different a little bit. So they have a whole other side of background of things. But that has been now my ideal way of putting a slack line in the facility is these scaffolding bolts. I always proof load them with a the dyno. I never just trust that they're strong. I always do the trig. You can't just attach to the metal and the back. It's a bomber. Like, it absolutely matters which way you're pulling on it, how the, how the thing's oriented behind the wall. We do regular inspections on all of those anchors, things like that. And you can even use, I won't get too much into the weeds of it, the last thing I'll say about where to put the slack line, it's a good consideration. is trying to put it somewhere, if you have the option, where you can put a running parallel line above it. That has a lot of uses, obviously. The overhead line of being able to balance and use something that's draped above you allows you to practice and advance your level of skill much more quickly and efficiently than just trial and failure, trial and failure, trial and failure. But even cooler is that if you rig it properly, that above line, You can essentially set up like a rescue type setup with like a pulley reeve up there and put someone in a full body harness who perhaps is in a wheelchair and have them walk on a slack line, which we have done at our facilities. It's incredible. Someone who would not think they could participate in this activity, who thinks they can with climbing, they know they can. They come and they see this and you're like, yeah, no, we can absolutely get you up onto this. We've developed a way that we have a small brick sort of... uh, walkway that leads up to where the slack line is where it's all matted so we can bring someone in a wheelchair up have them put on the full body harness we use a rescue set of coolies to load them into the slack line pull the wheelchair out of uh, place and essentially do a wheelchair wheelchair transfer to the slack line right and then as soon as they're ready to come back down we just bring the wheelchair back over and we bring them right back down into it again now as a result of doing this for a year with the system Almost all of my instructors and guides are comfortable with like Highline Rescue. They are using a Petzl Reeve and an ID. They're using real rescue materials to do this. Because again, nothing less than industry standard. And as a result, I would take them outside and absolutely involve them in a real rescue if I were leading a trad guided trip at Seneca. But they now know how to participate. So where are you... Decide to put the slack line has a lot of downstream consequences, and trying to set it up so that it will apply to the most number of people in your member base and customer base is what you're going for. What most people will want is just you know a 40 or 30 foot one inch slack line so they can practice. But what you need is something that's going to be applicable to use a wide array of weights. One thing I'll say real quick about the line is the length you choose is very important because the variation of weight of Slackliner in the middle affects how close to the ground that person is. And a 200-pound person might touch the ground, whereas a 100-pound person might not. So you really need to get it so that, again, your prospective participants for that thing aren't limited. You don't want someone to get on it once, touch the middle, and never try it again because they were like, it's not for me. Yeah, that's most of what I can think about in terms of choosing a location in the facility you want high ceilings, you want it to be easy access in terms of, again, things like the adaptive side of things. Definitely want to make sure it doesn't cross walkways because people won't see this one inch piece of webbing if cross. And for a while, we had a concern that kids were going to hit themselves in the neck. So what I ended up doing is just cutting some scraps of webbing and just hanging it, taping it to the webbing, hanging it, orange webbing. So like they are little dangly things under the webbing. as people are on the slackline, you see it. And it acts like cones that people don't have to put out. That's one thing. Oh, my God. Whatever slack line you put out, use cones with it, please. (laughs) It just will help draw attention to this is an exclusion zone. There's something atypical happening here.
0: Be aware. Do you have any preference in terms of putting it near, in an ideal situation, ideal placement, putting it near a lead wall, putting it near a bouldering space, putting it near maybe the weightlifting cardio space where does it where does it best situate
1: so the two places we have it in our Pittsburgh facilities is adjacent to our training area right in our like campus board moon board spray board area and then in the newer facility we have it at our ropes wall both places I've seen incredibly awesome patterns happen so training wise it's great people are using it in between different fitness, normal habits that they have. So they'll now include it in informal ways into their regimens, right, which I love. And it also sort of mentally creates this idea for a lot of people that it is a training tool, which is great because now it has that culture associated with it. In the facility in which it's close to the lead wall, it's been awesome because whenever there's downtime for people between burns on climbs, they just hop over onto that thing and it massively helps to decluster our fairly narrow ropes corridor. And it keeps kids sort of like clustered there where parents might be ropes climbing, they can glance over and see their kids sort of like playing with that thing. And it's been nice in that in that particular setup. It's also closer to our front desk. So the front desk can keep an eye on things a little bit because it. It definitely, it not being something people are familiar with, needs a little bit of some regular monitoring, similar to how I'm sure people do safety sweeps or walkthroughs, looking at the ropes wall, looking at the top out boulders, making sure that no funny business is happening, having it close to your front desk back is certainly helpful. I think the best location, if I could choose, would certainly be with any kind of adjacent hangout opportunities. Like if there's a couch, if there's a kitchenette. There's a little mezzanine area, there's little desks. It definitely has a lot of value in being seen as something you do in your downtime as well. Because then a lot of people will be willing to take it on their own outside or to other places. If they're just working and they gain value from just hopping on it when they're bored or it being there as part of the normal hangout culture, it's really easy to pull when it takes five minutes. People might be more interested interested in doing that. And we saw some success in that. For a while, we had enough time and resources. That we were selling slackline kits in our gear shop, and that was happening frequently. We had it set up in a way that people were hanging out near our kitchenette area, and then they'd be interested, they'd buy their own, and they'd start using it outside, which is great because then more people are familiar with our slackline. Increases safety, all these things. The last thing I guess in terms of ideal locations in the gym is trying as best as possible to keep it out of fall zones relative to climbing. We have one anchor one of our slack lines so we have three facilities with all three have slack lines in them one anchor one of them is underneath the top rope station and so if someone were climbing that top rope within a certain distance were to take a fall or even were being lowered from the top of the climb they would come down on the slack so we just shut that station down for the duration of while that slack line is rigged it's not a permanently installed slack line there one thing I did, sort of, make that justification to ownership at that time for us to be able to close a roped route, essentially, possibly even during our busiest times, right, 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. on like a Wednesday, right? To make that case, I sat one day and with a stopwatch, I timed the eight. for one on one day, so only one sample size, an average amount of time that a climbing duo would spend at a route on our gym, and we have very short walls. They're like 20, 25 feet in this particular facility, not very tall for a roof wall. And people were spending like 25, 30 minutes between them and their partner on a single route. So I sort of made the case initially to management and ownership and said, well, if people rig this, or if I put it up, we'll only keep it up for the exact same duration that a normal climbing partner would be on that route anyways, and then take it down, give some time for people to climb the route, put it back up if it's not seeming like anyone's climbing on that route. Eventually, people were using the Slack line enough and there wasn't any kind of complaint about the route closure that people just started leaving it up. And there were, you know what I mean? It was, it's never permanently rigged, but when now when it's rigged, it stays up for several hours because it gets more use. And it's definitely something that in the initial periods of it being there, people were hesitant and we had to have classes. We had to have, you know, I would regularly go on at busy hours and just do stuff just to sort of show people what's possible. You don't have to just get on it and walk. You can lay on it and you can balance on it, all sorts of ways. And over time, you know, maybe like two, three months into it, having a regular feature in our gym, it then finally started to really pick up people. I would just look out the office window and there's four or five people. There they are messing around on it.
0: Let's talk about the insurance aspect, because we're talking about how to develop it at a gym for programming. But very early in that process, a gym is going to want to talk with an insurer and make sure slacklining is part of the literature, make sure it's covered appropriately and all that stuff. And again, I'll stress here that you and I are not insurers. This is not meant to be legal counsel or legal guidance for insurance or anything like that. We're just two people conversing about the kind of broadly about this. But you did send me something that I've I really enjoyed looking through, which was you made a list of do's and don'ts of developing slacklining policies with a climbing facility or a climbing gym insurer. And I want to talk about a couple of these. Maybe I'll just read what you wrote to me. And then if you have anything to expound on that point, you could uh, say so afterwards. One of the the first elements that you listed was don't rely on subjective data. And you said insurers are aware that math is the language of God and statistics are generally the mainstay of for determining risk of any particular thing in a gym or in a facility the most compelling information to insurers is objective, hard data. And that really spoke to me because that has also been just honestly like a tenant of Climbing Business Journal, because we we always say we want to be data-driven. We want to give kind of the hard facts and the math and the statistics about the industry, because it's so easy to make broad statements like climbing is popular, climbing is booming, or this certain activity is becoming a popular amenity. But without some statistics behind it, a lot of that stuff doesn't have a lot of long-term resonance, certainly doesn't have resonance with insurers. So can you speak a little bit about subjective data pertaining to slacklining and how that can be helpful to when talking to an insurer?
1: Yeah. So subjective info obviously always has a place specifically for context, but I think ultimately data and metrics are the best way for a case to be painted to insurers that you are working towards one of their primary goals, which is to mitigate risk. So when we talk about mitigating risk with Slackline, you have to back up and say to yourself, well, what are the risks? And you can't just look at a Slackline and say, well, I think the risks are X, Y, Z. We fortunately live in a day and age where accident reports are kept historically for Slacklining. There is the International Slackline Association and Slackline US, which keeps accident reports and emergency reports. And you can literally. Query them and see what is commonly and statistically causing slackline-related issues. And additionally, ER visitation data in the in the United States is quite available. You can you know go onto things like the NCBI or PubMed or any of these publicly evidence-based, peer-reviewed databases, and you can look for the data yourself that's related to things like rock climbing, slacklining, tightrope walking, all of those things that fall into the the numbers game of what are the risks? And I think once you create that list, the list can be very long, can be very short. Whatever you do, you create that list and you then create a document that expands on it saying, these are the ways that we're going to mitigate that risk. And that also needs to be objective. It needs to be based in some level of reasonable, there is data backing this up. And I think that's where we draw on industry standard from things like rope access or professional rock climbing, such as guiding. Things where the standards have been placed, insurers are already familiar with them, and we can simply say, well, we're just going to do what they're doing. You already insure them, right? It is hard to get enough, because again, this is a developing area of data that is specific to Slackline or Highline and of enough sample size to be statistically relevant so there is some dance in terms of finding how again relevant that information is to the case you're making but it is a good starting place it, it helps the insurer and the underwriters see that that's the way you're thinking along the same lines as them additionally there's a good bit of objective metrics that can be pulled from other facilities so you know we live in a day and age that unfortunately some facilities are unwilling to share that data But there are some climbing companies out there that will be willing to as well. There's some some versions of our data that I feel comfortable sharing with other companies that are looking to do this kind of thing. Very simple things like making cases not even to insurers, but to, again, management and ownership, where slacklining workshops bring in around 50% of the participants are new first-time visitors to our facility. So that's an incredible way to get some new customers in the door. And in addition, has been shown with our, our surveys and our customer evaluations to have awesome attrition value. where customers are like, oh, they offer all this cool stuff. I'm going to stick with this gym and not go to another gym. It's all on the other side of town. But coming back to the insurer side of it, I guess that's enough of an objective place to start. Slackline accident reports, ER visitation data, and peer other peer facilities that are in a similar kind of demographic.
0: Yeah, and I feel like I might have mixed up subjective and objective there at the end. I meant definitely objective data is is what you want to find when you're talking about this and when you're delivering information to the insurers. S- some subjective data of of course can help, and never it never hurts to spice stuff up with that. But what they really want to hear are are facts and all the all the things that you just pointed out with statistics and whatnot. Another thing that's related to what you just said, another element that you added that you put it on your list do change existing risk mitigation strategies to include slacklining. And this is really important because this is so easy to, to overlook, I think, for facilities. But you pointed out things like the waiver, things like the walkthrough that the desk, the deskie or whomever is giving to a, a new member or the signage around the gym or physical barricades. And I know previously you mentioned things like orange cones. All of that stuff should incorporate slacklining at some point once a gym gets serious about wanting to do this. You you should have walkthroughs discussing the slacklining. You should have signage that acknowledges where the slacklining is taking place and when and all of that. Like I said, it's so easy for a place to overlook. And it's real understandable that a gym can overlook it too because it's kind of easy to think that people are stoked about it and and then they'll just kind of go on their own.
1: Definitely the walkthrough is the, the highest value place to sort of introduce and normalize it with everything else. I think we try to do a general job with our walkthrough of setting this tone of climbing is inherently dangerous, the onus of safety is on you, everything like that. And then obviously selling our facility from a business perspective. But I think one of the things that it also does, each walkthrough is different. And so that experience for that person with the walkthrough, they get a snapshot of a slightly different gym each time. So when you have people come in and, for example, it's a family, maybe spend a little bit more time talking about the slackline. So maybe they're going to use it a little bit more than someone who's just coming in and you see they have their sports stuff and that's all they're going to be doing that day. But it absolutely is the highest yield to have it included in like a short one minute blur as you walk around the gym, even if it's not rigged. This is where our slackline goes. Once it's up, anyone can use it. We ask that no one but staff make adjustments on it. And we ask that you follow the rules and etiquette sign over there, such as no hand holding, no using shoes, take off your socks, make sure that over, the mats are out, all that stuff. And I think that normalization, it helps in a lot of ways, but especially in terms of getting everyone on the staff to think about it in the same way that they think about, for example, the down climbing ladder from the top out Like all of these things that have danger, risk, and and responsibility. Because if they're giving walkthroughs and they're thinking in their mind, this is part of the gym. This is part of the gym. This is part of the gym. When they're doing their job, they're also going to be thinking that
0: Yeah. And just like any gym should realize that this is something that they have to discuss with the insurer. It's it's not rec you know, you don't want somebody just coming in there and setting up a line and then just doing it on their own without having done the due diligence at the insurance level. And to that point, another thing you listed was don't assume that it's free, meaning policy changes, insurance policy changes, can absolutely increase a gym's premium. So be aware that they may need to do some sort of cost-benefit analysis to decide whether slacklining is right for their programming operations. Can you speak a little bit about what sort of cost-benefit analysis might be done, how long they should... Do something like that. Where? How big of a sample are they gauging here? You know,
1: man, I was so shocked coming into the director role and starting to interact with insurers because you know, from a business perspective, especially in, an, in a typically American society where the customer is always right, I thought it was just like tell the insurer what you want, right, and they will take care. Of it. And it is not that dynamic at all. It is you present what you'd like to the insurer. And they tell you what you need to do in order to, to be able to do it, right? And that's, I think, one of the unfortunate things with dealing with the insurer that we all don't like is there's a little bit of power struggle in a lot of ways. Like we want to just run our business and offer things to customers and they don't want to have to pay out policies every day. So they're, they're really, they're like the little devil on your shoulder where they're, they're, they're giving you a really strong sense of balance between two worlds that you probably otherwise wouldn't have yourself because you're wrapped up in this other thing. And keeping them informed is tantamount. So like a lot of trust goes into that relationship. Over the years that you develop talking to the same person with the underwriters, the same insurance agent, it's very important for them to be able to trust that you are not illegally operating outside of your policy or that you're not doing things you shouldn't be doing, that you really are interested in in adhering to the, the layout of your policy. Because ultimately, if you need to use that policy, chances are you're probably going to be going to work, right? And, all of these things we talk about them having formalities and rules and regulations. Really, none of that matters to court law in the United States. Like it's 12 jurors who know nothing about rock climbing and a plaintiffs' attorney who could be like one of the most successful attorneys in the entire United States. It means nothing. for Logic, reason, all that kind of stuff. What, what entirely matters is due diligence and did you cover yourself with the proper policy? Were you following all the rules? all of those things? Just I guess try to make the settlement not as big, right? That's a very pessimistic way to look at it. Obviously, I'm just taking that like super extreme version of a um, perspective. But keeping them involved and keeping them completely informed in your interests, even if they are not going to "quote unquote" play ball, it's it is in your interest to do that. So,
0: well, it is interesting because you you were saying there is kind of this unique dynamic when a gym is working with an insurer, but at the same time, one of the, another element that you listed on your list was don't let your insurer be the boss. Right. And, and I think this is a good point because this doesn't just apply to slacklining. This applies to any programming that the gym is or anything that the gym is going to have to do that has an insurance aspect. And and you said that, remember, the insurance is there to provide you meaning the gym or the facility with a service. So in a lot of cases, what the insurer might say to you in response to this, in response to wanting to set up, in this case, a slacklining program or whatever, it's not that they'll give you this hard, no, you absolutely cannot do this. It might be more that they're giving you an answer in the vein of, well, we need more information. And I think that that's important because that speaks to that there is a level of persistence in a lot of cases that, that a gym might need to have to deal with an insurer and to get them on board. In the industry, we've all seen cases where an insurer doesn't really even know anything about climbing necessarily, right? And so you have to explain that to them, explain the indoor component and all of that. And slacklining is just another element that can be even less familiar to a lot of these insurers or potential insurers.
1: Yeah, I think the way that you structure the the quote-unquote proposal matters a lot. Coming at them with, can we ensure a slack line, rings a lot differently than we would like to ensure this type of slack line with these types of risk mitigation measures, this type of signage, X, Y, Z, right? It just allows you to not only create this conversation from the start that is we would like this not can we have this but it also allows you like I said earlier to tell the insurer we've thought about this this isn't just like a I saw a, a cool documentary and I want to roll it out in my gym right finding insurers at least in my interactions with them prefer to work with people who are using their language and so if you come at them. Again, in a way that they are used to expecting, they are just more likely to engage you as opposed to what you might perceive as a message that comes back with a simple no. It's never no. They're not the boss. Again, you know, even though there is this, this weird power dichotomy that happens, they are being paid by you to provide you a service. And so a lot of times the way that they will phrase, at least again, in my personal experience, a, a reply or something back to a request Is not necessarily that you can't have it this way, but that we need more of these finer points developed out to sort of see where you fall within our risk stratification. Because one thing I will say is we are all climbing facilities are pretty unique. They're all different in subtle ways. But ultimately, at the end of the day, most of these climbing insurers are going to have heard of slacklining in some small way, at least by now. It, It would be very surprising to me to as an average climate facility in the United States to approach your insurer and then have not no idea about it.
0: Well, this is kind of a good, uh, a good way to conclude, which is, so if people have listened to this conversation, they're psyched about it, where can they go? Where would you recommend? What's the best place to learn more, to maybe find some of these statistics, to maybe get connected with some of these experts and whatnot? We said here are the first steps for the gym, but now after they've listened to this conversation, what are the next steps? So one
1: thing, what we did, I'll tell you what we what how what happened with Ascend. And I think it dances some gray area in some senses, in that, you know, this is a private business. The owners own this this business. They they can do what they'd like with the business. And so when they first got word of the possible possibility of slacklining programming and getting that involved in their gyms they reached out to um, a, a bunch of us in the slackline community here in pittsburgh and we started to just simply hang out and volunteer with them there was no paid kind of exchange we weren't hosting workshops yet the first time we ever met up with the, the one of the owners um, of send paul he just invited us to, invited us to the gym before they opened one morning um, on the weekend and was like hey let's rig some slacklines and hang out and so it gave us this very familiar like this is how I've met climbing partners kind of experience but in a sense of like hey let's both get to know each other let's get to know this activity together let's see how it works in the gym there's no money being exchanged so the insurance policy really doesn't matter here this is just a couple of friends hanging out in his private business again it's it's a weird gray area I mean who knows how that technically falls out maybe thank god nothing happened or whatever. But that commute, coming back to the very first thing we started about, that, the value of that community that's around you is often underrealized. I don't think there's many places in the United States that haven't seen some small version of a slackline community, at least within a two-hour driving distance. And we have drawn people to our gym from up to five hours away for single-day workshops related to slacklining, which is baffling that someone would drive five hours, rent an Airbnb, for a like three or four hour workshop in a climbing gym, but it happens every time we have a workshop. So branching your zone, your region out for slacklining because it's developing and understanding the community is not going to be as focused and concentrated with the climbing community. It's going to be a little bit of a lighter shade, but bigger circle on the map, right? And then bringing that community in, I think it just allow it in a way that you are not offending your insurance policy it allows you to get that first handshake started, and maybe worst case scenario, you make a friend, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, it all kind of goes back to the the localism of it, right? Like, look to your surrounding community, the people that are already there, and the people that are already excited about this and more knowledgeable than you are about it. That can go a long way to helping the the early stages, the early sprouts. Of a, of a program that that's going to grow. Wade, this is great. Thanks so much for chatting. This was a lot of fun. I always enjoy talking to you because I can kind of feel your enthusiasm for this. And I always come away from this having learned something. So I really appreciate it.
1: Well, I love having these kinds of conversations, man. You're incredibly insightful. And I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but like I'm a big fan of that Hot Ones, Spicy interviewer series. And... I have really grown from that series to appreciate the interview art. And you're really great at it, man. Like your level of continuity and transition and again, your awareness and insight. It's just, it's awesome. It makes me like, as I'm talking about these things, I'm like, man, I want to go back out to the gym and get some stuff cooking, you
0: know? <laughs> what could I, what can we do that's like climbing's equivalent of hot ones? Like, instead of eating spicy chicken wings, like, could we have somebody <laughs> hanging on increasingly, <laughs> increasingly more... N- slimmer hangboard or crimps or something? hang like, in there. <laughs> ask them harder and harder questions as, as oh the, as the edge gets dude. smaller and smaller. Dude, you're on to something, yeah. If it God happens... happens get, like,
1: Migos and Andra out there. They're on, like,
0: quarter-inch pad. <laughs> It'd be if really this cool. happens, consider yourself. We want to have you on this hang in there. <laughs> I'll hang from my feet, though. I don't like hangboards, man. I have too many
1: wrist injuries. <laughs> sure,
0: yeah. There you, hang... However you want to do it, right? That's part of the fun of the show, that'd be great. Well, thanks again, this was really fun.
1: Same, take care.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode with Wade Desai. As stated in there, it wasn't meant to be a comprehensive rundown, but more like just a sampling of some of the things to think about if you feel inspired to start your own slacklining program at your gym. If you enjoyed what you heard, Be sure to come back again. We'll be back soon with another episode. And tell a friend or coworker about this podcast too, because as is so often true in climbing, nothing beats good old word of mouth stoke. See you next time. See you next time.